What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this episode of Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. How do the landscapes we love shape the people we are? For several years and more than a thousand miles, Robert McFarlane has been following the vast network of old paths and routes that crisscross Britain and its waters and connect them to countries and continents beyond. His journeys have taken him from the chalk downs of southern England to the remote bird islands of the Scottish Northwest, from the disputed territories of Palestine to the pilgrimage routes of Spain and the sacred landscapes of the eastern Himalayas. In this event, recorded at the Tabernacle in London on the 12th of June 2012, McFarlane tells us of his time along the ways, where he has walked stride for stride with a 5,000-year-old man near Liverpool, followed deadliest path in Britain, sailed an open boat far out into the Atlantic along an ancient sea road, and crossed paths with walkers of many kinds. Wanderers, wayfarers, shamans, trespassers, poets, devouts, and ghosts. To hear the full-length episode of this event and to support our mission to foster honest debate, and compelling conversations, head to intelligentsquives.com slash membership. The path, running along a bank, a parapet, the safe and the precipitous wood below, the level road, there is a path. It serves children from looking down the long, smooth steep between the legs of beech and yew to where a fallen tree checks the site while men and women content themselves with the road and what they see over the bank and what the children tell. The path, winding like silver, trickles on the border that the evening invaded by thinnest moss that tries to cover roots and crumbling chalk with gold, olive and emerald, but in vain. The children wear it. They have flattened the bank on top and silvered it between the moss with the current of their feet year after year. But the road is houseless and leads not to school. To see a child is rare there. And the eye has but the road, the wood that overhangs and under yawns it, and the path that looks as if it led onto some legendary or fancied place where men have wished to go and stay till sudden it ends where the wood ends. So that was Helen Thomas speaking. And Helen Thomas was first Edward Thomas's wife, and then she was his widow. 
And she was speaking late in her life, and she was reading The Path, which Thomas wrote on the 26th of March, 1915, from draft to more or less complete version in a single day. If the poem can be said to be about one path, which it can't really, then it would be the path that Thomas's own children walked to school through the wooded chalk uplands of the South Downs near the well-named village of Steep in Hampshire, where Thomas and his family lived in the years running up to the First World War. There's a lovely moment in the poem. The children wear it. Single sentence, a subtle sentence, a simple-looking sentence. Um, It's a dark poem, but this is, I think, a beautiful and compressive and very hopeful image of the reciprocality between people and their landscapes. Because, of course, the children wear this path in two senses. They wear it into the ground with the fall of their feet. They keep its line clear through the wood by walking it. But they also wear it in the sense of somehow carrying it upon themselves or even within themselves. That repeated walk to school between the ewes and the beaches over the crumbling chalk impresses itself upon their imagination. It runs through their minds as well as through the landscape. They have silvered it between the moss with the current of their feet year after year, notes Thomas delicately. The children now are a stream, a silver river. They're many children. They're not just one child or two children in particular, just as the path is not one path, but all paths in a sense. And they are making their fine flow over this old track across the decades. And they're keeping it open, even as it, in some sense, opens them. This is Thomas. I I love this photograph. Uh, It has these fingerprints visible upon it. We don't know whose they are. They may be Thomas's, they may be Helen's. And the lines of the fingerprints are picked up in the lines of this big, baggy tweed jacket that Thomas liked to wear. He had many of them. They smelt of smoke because he smoked his clay pipe and he liked big pockets on them so he could fill them with hazelnuts and apples as he walked. Um, If you know of Thomas, you probably know of him as a First World War poet and you probably know of him as the author of such often anthologised and nationally favoured poems as As the Team's Head Brass or probably most famously Adelstrop. Yes, I remember Adelstrop. Well, lots of people do, um, nearly a century on from its writing. And Thomas, really because of that one poem, has been remembered as a quiet pastoralist, as an elegist for an old England that was, was dying even as he wrote in the years running up to the war. A rural dreamer. He wasn't. Uh, He was many things, and rarely, if ever, that. He was a novelist, he was a memoirist, he was a short storyist, he was a biographer, he was a travel writer, he was a truly great nature writer. He was a walker, he was a depressive, he was a passionate friend, an often poor husband, a brilliant but also cruel parent to his children. And he was profoundly modern, very long before his time. Some of you will know the story of his coming to poetry. He came very late in his life, urged into it by his friend, the American poet Robert Frost. And he wrote very fast. He wrote around 140 poems in just over two years. He started in December 1914, and he stopped early in 1917. And these really were poems that changed the course of English language poetry. And their branch lines are still being followed. Ted Hughes famously said at one point, Edward Thomas is father of us all. 
And in those poems, and in his prose, and in his life, he was obsessed, I think, with one question above all. And that question was how we are affirmed and scattered by, how we are consoled and troubled by the landscapes through which we move and the places in which we live. And that's really why I've I've begun tonight with Thomas, and I will end with him as well, because I want to talk to you, as I say, about this fugitive subject uh, of these relations unmistakable to experience, very difficult to articulate between landscape and the human heart. Let me give a, a, a slightly inelegant abstract unpacking of that. I am interested in the ways in which our minds and our moods and our imaginations and our identities are influenced by the textures and the weathers and the forms and the slopes and the curves and the creatures remembered and actual of the places we inhabit. I'm interested in the ways in which the feel of the world influences our feeling for the world. I'm, I, these are abstract matters, as I know, um, so I'll, I'll try to illustrate them rather than um, uh, subject them to exegesis. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. One way to illustrate them is with Thomas, because his life and work provide us with a means of exploring some of these ideas. He was born in 1878, uh, as you can see, to Welsh parents in London, and that Anglo-Welsh identity never really left him. And from a very young age, he was a walker and a writer and a wayfarer and a noticer, and he was particularly fascinated by paths and by those who had followed them and by the places through which they ran. And he possessed, Keats has this lovely phrase, um, I'm always quoting it, but I will do again tonight. Keats writes about 
uh, about possessing a pair of patient sublunary legs, and, and Thomas had those too. They carried him over literally thousands of miles of old tracks. He walked the Ridgeway and the Icknield Way and the San Helens of Wales. He walked the Pilgrim's Way, and he walked local paths on the South Downs, which he lived in, lived on, and loved. He had incredible stamina. He could walk 30 miles in a day, no problem. He could walk 40 miles in a day feasibly and probably do it for two or three days on the trot. He's not quite up to Richard Long's standards. Uh, Richard Long really is, for me, one of the great athlete artists of all time. 33 miles a day for 33 days. Land's End, John O'Groats, 1,096 miles, somewhere around that figure. Uh, Just astonishing ability to get up and do extraordinary distances day after day. Well, Thomas, Thomas possessed a little of that. The earliest roads wandered like rivers through the land, he wrote exactly a century ago, having, like rivers, one necessity to keep in motion. Well, he used those old ways to keep himself in motion too, because he was, as I say, chronically depressed, and walking was one of the ways he could outstride his black dog. So he would cut a stick, he liked holly best of all, and he would set off along what he called the indelible old roads, worn, as he said, by hoofs and feet and the trailing staves of long-dead generations. And if you hear a morbidity in that turn of phrase, he was also alert to the life and the immediacy and the beauty of being out walking. What he also knew was that paths run through people as surely as they run through places. We talk these days about ecosystem services. We talk about the ways in which environments provide for us. Well, one of the ecosystem services that environments provide for us is metaphor. Landscape gives us ways of figuring ourselves to ourselves. And for Thomas, that provision of metaphor was absolutely vital to his sense of self-understanding. So paths connected real locations, but they also led inwards to the self. And he really began to figure his own spirit, if you like, his own inner landscape, perhaps in topographic terms. He talked about possessing paths and corners and junctions and valleys and woods, and his poems and his prose are filled with landscapes, psychological landscapes. So he internalised the features of the landscapes that he lived in and loved, and he used them to map out his melancholy and his hopes. So we might say, because I think that prepositions matter a great deal, we might say that Thomas didn't think only about landscape or didn't think only on landscape. He thought in it, and he thought with it. Uh, And I would venture that everyone in this room thinks to some degree in landscape and with landscape. I would say that all of you have been significantly shaped. Somebody may stand up at the end and say, no, I've been entirely unexposed to landscape in any influential way. I'd be very interested to hear that. This is speculative, but I think you have all been shaped by places, by phenomena experienced and recollected. And I wonder really what your places are. I'd be fascinated to know the places to which you return in recollection or in reality, the places that give form to your memories and textures to your experience. Are they wild? Are they near at hand? Are they modest? Are they remote? Are they Scottish bays or Cumbrian valleys or Welsh peninsulas or an English field corner, a turn in the path in the park, a scrap of woodland on a city fringe, or maybe just the patch of sky that you look up to during your lunch hour because the birds fly across it. Are they gardens? Are they copses? Are they moors? Are they tours? Are they remote glens or snow-covered summits? I don't know, but I suspect that regardless of their type, 
uh, you will have one or several or probably many. And there's an American writer called Barry Lopez whose work has been a huge influence on mine. He puts it beautifully. He says, we are all shaped by the sound of wind, the slant of sunlight, by streams of scent flowing faint or sharp in the larger ocean of air. Well, I agree with Lopez. I think we are porous to the world. I think our moods and our emotions are configured by our surroundings in ways that are hard to speak about, but powerful to experience. We forget this to be the case because we increasingly spend so much of our time indoors in climate-controlled environments, tapping at our computers, communicating virtually. We are increasingly disembodied. But we are still, as Ted Hughes puts it very simply and very beautifully in a wonderful essay just called uh, Weather, we are natural barometers. Well, uh, it was ideas such as these that I wanted to explore when I started to begin work on the old ways, uh, the book out of which this evening's lecture emerges. I started it about five years ago now, and it's the third in a loose trilogy of books that are all concerned with this relationship of imagination and place. Um, they've taken me a decade. They've taken me 300,000 words of published work. They've taken me a million or more of unpublished words, uh, which I... Uh, which have ended up in various kind of waste bins and trash files. Um, they've taken me several thousand miles of walking, and in the course of researching them, I've experienced uh, frostnip, midges, leeches, insomnia, altitude sickness, some shocking hangovers, um, uh, blisters, and many, many banal indignities of travel. But I've also experienced sights and sensations that will never leave me and made friendships, I hope, will never end. And the first book of those three was called Mountains of the Mind. It puzzled at this question of why people might fall so powerfully in love with mountains that they were willing to risk their life and their limb for what are, after all, lumps of rock, uh, geological phenomena, contingencies totally indifferent to their votaries and those who scale them. Um, the second, The Wild Places, was a quest that led me both outwards. It was animated by a desire to find what wildness might still exist in this um, developed and farmed and long-inhabited island group of ours, this archipelago that we call the British Isles, um, but also inwards to pry at these questions of why we might need what Henry David Thoreau calls the tonic of wildness. Wallace Stegner, and another American writer, writes a brilliant letter called The Wilderness Letter to a US park officer, and he says in that, it's a defense of wild land, he says... We might need wildness available to us, even if we do nothing other than drive to its edge and look in. Again, that idea of, of imagined landscapes, knowing that such places exist, being psychologically resourceful for us. And then at last came the old ways, and I really wanted to explore further these fragile questions of how we wear landscapes in both senses, how we mark it and how we are marked by it, how it helps us think and think about ourselves. And it, it became very clear to me that this exploration couldn't be undertaken by sitting still. So, inspired by Thomas, I decided to use the network of old paths and routes, the hollowways, the pilgrim tracks, the drove roads, the greenways that web the British landscape. I would take these as a logic of movement. I would follow them as a means of walking into as well as across the world. I wanted to see what ghosts of earlier walkers could be encountered or summoned back and what knowledge might be gained. There's a beautiful etymology which joins our very, um, as it were, dull verb to learn. If you follow the root in both senses of that word back all the way through the fricative thickets of the Germanic all the way into the proto-Indo-European, you'll find that our verb to learn 
comes from, uh, has a root meaning of to find or follow a track. It sounds very interesting, and they would obviously bring certain people out in coughs, but um, uh, be warned, if you do purchase this book, uh, a friend of mine gave it to his son, and inexplicably, he was qu- quickly bored by it. Um, <laughs> it has powerful soporific qualities, and possibly prescription level. The first walk I took was along a path called the Icknield Way, which you might have heard. It's an ancient trackway. It runs from somewhere in mid-Norfolk to somewhere on the chalk north of the Thames source. And there it frays into the Ridgeway in the unknowable fashion of old paths. Its beginnings and its ends, both historically and geographically, are inscrutable. Its origins are lost in antiquity, but we know it to have been walked and used as a passage of travel for at least 1,500 years, but possibly... 5,000, and it runs at an angle to the south of Cambridge. And early one hot May morning, I slipped out of my house in a South Cambridge suburb. I bicycled along a field path, its um, sides beautifully thick with cowslip. I went up to a Roman road, which is now a green track, followed that over the hills for seven miles, fell off my bike, broke two ribs, (laughs) thought I was going to have to go home immediately, discovered that it's possible to walk with broken ribs, though not sleep, I discovered, but walking was, was okay. So carried on, and I reached the point where the Roman road intersected with the Icknield Way, and there I hid my bike in a hedge and sort of slightly awkwardly limp, limped off, and it became an extraordinary long walk. Um, Thomas had walked and bicycled that exact same path at the depths of his depression some century earlier. He'd written an extraordinary book about it. I covered long distances, about 30 miles a day at the top, so I slept out by the way as I went. I found myself at the end of each day hip-sore and coated in chalk dust, looking faintly ghostly, but reminded of my embodiedness by the fact that I had blisters at the end of the first day the size of half my heel, and also because I smelt absolutely terrible. Still don't know quite what kept me awake at the end of each day, body odour, blisters, or broken ribs. But I do recall something to do with the the, the hard and long sunlight of those days. I do recall images from it as though they were this May just gone and not several years ago. I recall finding a bird's egg, dead and delicate, in the grass. I recall passing through fields of golden flowers. I recall seemingly endless days of sunlight. I discovered that if you're in the South Country and you're out and it's good weather, the skylarks sing until getting on for midnight, then they get up again at about four in the morning, and if you are sleeping out on the top of a down or on high ground and you have a sky full of skylarks, well, the group noun should be alarm clock because there is no way of sleeping on. One of the places I spent a night uh, by a Neolithic barrow near the village of Purton, and I woke the next morning to find a scene almost straight out of Thomas, He says, when you wake on high land and you see a sea of white mist below you, you realise that this southern part of England can be understood almost as an island chain of atolls, he says. And looking across, I could see the chalk downs rising like islands from this sea of mist. And always I've followed the path. And when you follow a path for a long period of time, it comes to take on, in its many forms, a sort of compulsive quality... It is expressed in many surfaces, in flower, in tarmac, in soil, in leaf litter, in trees. And it came inevitably to seem endless, as though I could have just 
kept walking because path does join to path. And as though if I'd followed this sometimes eye-burningly white path uh, as it ribboned on over the high ground, drawing my eye and my feet and my imagination, I could walk to who knows where. I experienced the strange simultaneities of the English landscape. Many of you will know this, its ability to hold time frames in equivalence. So there is one point on the Icknield Way where you are walking an arguably 5,000-year-old track next to a road, the A10, which runs between Royston and Baldock, and next to a railway. And all these means of motion from different points in human history go about their business. And the Icknield Way is the least visible of all of them. And I began to develop what became a recurrent sense in these walkings, uh, that old paths were places where time might pleat and repeat itself in strange ways, fold back on itself. And Thomas wrote about this. He says, there are certain places in landscapes where, he says, we are aware of time in ways too difficult and strange for the explanation of historian and zoologist and philosopher. None of our languages, he says, none of our disciplines will do the job of explaining that experience. I can't do it either. He came as close as anyone I know. The Icknield Way turned out to be my entry point to this extraordinary network of paths that joined with one another, that crisscrossed the British landscape and its waters, that joined Britain to countries and indeed to continents beyond. Holloways, bossels, chutes, pilgrim paths, greenways, here paths, drove roads, lays, song lines, sea roads, whaleways. Whenever I say that, I sound like Jonathan Ross saying railways. I mean whaleways. Sea roads go in the Anglo-Saxon by their kenning names, often the Swan's Way, or in this case, uh, the Whale Rat, the, the Whale's Road, the Whale Way. I'll tell you about those in a little bit. The Icknield Way launched me out along these roads, trying to learn from walking them and from the people I met along them. And I set off on this series of journeys and experienced the usual mix of ennui and epiphany and idiocy and incompetence and adventure and happiness and tiredness. One of the walks I went on, it was... The MOD are not welcoming to the walkers who exert their right of way along this footpath, which is called the Broomway and which runs off the Essex coast, leaves the mainland at a place called Wakering Stairs, and it leads straight out to sea. And it goes out to sea over the flat ground, and it reaches an area of hard sand. Nobody quite knows why it exists. Perhaps it's a glacial feature, perhaps it overtops a reef of chalk, but for centuries it's been the way onto and off foulness. And you're about a mile, and a, a mile offshore, and then you turn northeast and you walk out over these intertidal flats. And obviously you get your tide times right, or else you die. And you reach foulness, and you, have a, you pretend to stay calm, not thinking about the tide, and you hope that the moon will stay in its orbit and then you retrace your steps and you return to the mainland and it feels as if you have stepped into another country entirely. And that day, truly, with my friend David, it did feel as though we had crossed a border into not just another country but another type of place altogether. And partly it was to do with the reflections. Um, you are walking on water, though that water is only an inch or two deep. Below it is hard sand. But with the mist all around you, you become doubled. You stand like a playing card king in a version of yourself. And the mist that day limited our sense of our surroundings so that it felt as though we were moving in a luminous socket or flying through a space whose 
parameters we couldn't. And eventually you begin to detect paths in this apparently pathless environment, tidal channels that exist chiefly as phenomena of light, which are just perhaps half an inch deeper. And they extend astonishing invitations to follow, but of course many of them lead directly out to sea. And it was only on the way back uh, we checked our timings, double-checked our tide tables, and, and couldn't really resist their invitation to follow. So we turned due east and, and walked out towards, as it were, the outermost limit. And my friend David, who is six foot seven and, and, and very skinny, uh, and when doubled in, in the mirror world of the Broomway, he became a truly extraordinary creature. And it was only really once the panic began to ooze up through the calm in us that we turned and, and walked back to land. Uh, it was an extraordinary walk. It was only six miles or so in length, but it left us feeling transformed. It changed the texture of our mind and of our senses. Mind felt uh, substantial in the sense of acted upon by the substances on which we were. And we felt sand flat. I felt deeply serene. Nothing to do with marijuana or booze. It was all to do with sand. I went to the northwest of Scotland to travel the sea roads. I have uh, friends in the Outer Hebrides and I spent parts of several summers in those islands talking and walking with the people who know it best or know them best. And among them was this remarkable man who's uh, called Ian Stephen. And he is a many things like Thomas. He's a sailor and a poet and a sculptor and an artist and a fisherman. But most of all, I guess, he is a, a liver. He lives um, very keenly without ever living greedily. And he's devoted much of his life to, not in a rabbinical sense, but just in a, an excited sense, to following the sea roads. And the sea roads are paths of long usage that are determined by current and by headland and by landfall and by trade routes. The water doesn't archive mark in the way that land does. The Icknield Way may be a mark first left 5,000 years ago, but of course the sea refuses to hold marks for more than a minute or two. So the idea of a sea path is, is slightly offends our sensibility. It seems paradoxical. And they're dissolving ways. The only mark is the, is the wake, a brief turbulence, a stern. Um, Ian has tracked these, and one way you can track them is by story. You can watch where the same stories make landfall in different places, in the Orkneys, in the Shetlands, in the Western Isles, down through the Irish Sea, all the way down that incredible Atlantic seaboard, all the way down eventually, some of those stories, to Brittany and then to Galicia and Spain. And Ian is a storyteller, and so he would tell these stories as he went, and they would be inflected and shifted as we, as we travelled. And we sailed in open, very old open boats, uh, wonderful boats. There is just a hull and a sail, and sometimes... Uh, Ian would just take a, a handheld compass. He wasn't fond of GPS unless it had to be carried. I'm a terrible sailor. But he was very patient and he taught me well and the rest of the crew were, were brilliant. And we made a number of journeys in these old, beautiful boats, larch-hulled, built up on the northwest. Uh, one of those was to the Shants, the little island group some of you will know that lies in the Minch the great tidal waters of the Minch, and then gradually the shants, which really feel like almost mythic features as they emerge from weather and sea shimmer and ripple. They look as though they float above the surface of the water, and you approach them 
It's incredible rain moving like candle blacking through the sky. And eventually we made it to the shants. As Ian explained to me, they feel like a marginal place, but they're actually, once you understand the sea roads, they're a crossroads. There were saints and traders and raiders and travellers have been stopping for millennia. They are ecological hubs. They are trading hubs for the biota. And that extraordinary inversion of sense, of, of margin becoming centre, was very powerful in these places. We were going to sail from the Outer Hebrides across to the Orkneys, the Pentland Firth crossing, in, in one of these open boats. But um, to my uh, relief, <coughs> I mean uh, disappointment, the winds were not favourable. So we spent a lot of time plotting, and Ian had these wonderful dividers, and he, he did this almost mystical calculus, which involved his knowledge of the waters, the wind, and so, well, I mean, so many sailors here, I'm sure, who will be very adept at it. To me, it was like watching a kind of magic trick or seance. Eventually, we sailed due north for 40 miles overnight to the little Gannet Island of Suleskir, which really is, uh, I guess, along with Kilda, which is 40 miles west of the Outer Hebrides, is one of the most remote scraps of land involved in our archipelago and just a beautiful boat we'd sailed overnight in this in this wonderful boat called jubilee amazingly and sulaskia which really is the jaggy top of a submarine mountain and it's home to gannets and and fulmers and kittiwakes and not much else and the feeling of remoteness out there to me a mountaineer but not a sailor was almost unparalleled and the feeling of, of danger even in those very, very benign conditions. And in big Atlantic storms, the waves break right over Suleskia, and they have bored beneath it. It's hard stuff, it's nice, it's really old, but it's vulnerable to the pummeling of the storms. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. To hear the rest of this conversation, or if you'd like to listen ad-free, attend some of our excellent events, or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com slash membership. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run, or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.